This episode's subject was requested by Emily, one of our podcast family members. She has noticed the reporting of large placental venous lakes with increased frequency on routine antepartum ultrasound. Placental lakes are enlarged spaces within the placenta that are filled with maternal blood. These spaces are also called intervillous spaces because they're found between the placental villi, which are the finger-like projections of the placenta that contain the actual fetal blood vessels. The placental villi do float in these intervillous spaces and absorb oxygen and nutrients from the surrounding maternal blood. The blood-filled placental lakes appear nearly black on ultrasound because they don't reflect the sound waves back to the ultrasound machine. Placental lakes can be seen within the placenta or on the fetal surface of the placenta bulging into the amniotic cavity. Slow, swirling blood flow can be seen within the spaces and the shape of the spaces tends to change with urine contractions. These features help to distinguish a placental lake from the rarer form of finding of a placental thrombus. Well, why is this even supposed to be an issue anyway? I mean, how can venous lakes even affect the fetus? After all, maternal blood is normally found in those inner villous spaces between the chorionic villi. Well, the theory is that large placental lakes may actually affect blood redistribution through the chorionic blood vessels and affect the oxygen exchange. So, are these placental sono findings a harbinger of bad things to come, or are they simply benign findings? Well, in this episode, we're going to go do a deep dive, no pun intended as we speak about lakes. (laughs) We're going to do a deep dive into the data and give you a clear answer. Hi, I'm Ashley. I'm Ruth. I'm Zoraida. And we are Chapa's Angels. And this is Clinical Pearls. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Do y'all remember that show, Charlie's Angels? I don't mean they're like the new remake that are all fancy with all the special effects. I mean the super cheesy, ultra 70s, 70s original version. I grew up with that. I think I was like 10 or 12 when those came out. And I remember thinking when I saw the, you know, the Charlie's Angels going man, I want to be a detective. I mean, I get to hang out with that. (laughs) I know it's weird. Look, I was like 12. I was going through a couple of changes. All right. And so I saw the, you know, the Charlie's Angels and I thought, man, being a detective is where it's at. Obviously, I did not go that direction. Okay. So I may have overshared there. That may have been TMI. Let's get back to to the show. Uh, The near universal use of obstetrical ultrasound has led to this discovery of a lot of these subtle abnormalities that otherwise would be considered meh, but now we're finding these with increased frequency. Now, since these discoveries could be normal or abnormal variants, there's a lot of diagnostic confusion here when we do all of these ultrasound exams, and it could lead to not only increased interventions that don't actually mean anything, or to patient anxiety. That's why we're talking about this thing. 
Or if a patient is looking at the monitor and says, hey, what are all those black things in the placenta? Um, you need to be able to explain that. So this is very timely because we actually just saw a very similar uh, ultrasound last week in our clinic just like Emily uh, discussed uh, in her text to me. And so this does happen, and it happens a lot, all right? Because one of those potential issues is the finding of these large vascular spaces that look, you know, black uh, on the monitor, which freaks patients out. Like, there, there's a chunk missing. No, that's actually blood. That's all right. Fluid and blood looks black, as you all know, because there's no echogenicity there. But if patients are paying attention and you're explaining to them what you're finding, that they can pick these things up. So then the question is, does does it matter? Well, first of all, these are nothing new. Ultrasounds in pregnancy started becoming a thing really in the 70s or so. And it was back in the Gray Journal when Fisher et al. first actually published these placental lakes and these placental findings, all right? That was back in 1976 in the Gray Journal. Um, The question is, so do those actually mean anything? Now, when I was a resident, uh, we didn't grade the placental lakes, but we did grade the placental parenchyma, right? Grade zero, one, two, and three. That that was a thing. We don't do that anymore because it didn't really plan out. Nothing really changed for that. Although there is one small scenario where uh, an advanced placental grade, meaning a lot of cotyledons, uh, very echogenic, uh, a parenchyma and a lot of calcifications where it possibly could mean something. And that's when a advanced placental grade is found early, like under 32 weeks, because the placenta shouldn't look that way, right? Those are normal findings at term that don't have any implications. But if you're finding that at what you think is 32 weeks and either the patient is misdated or if there's that degree of placental infarction and recalcification, uh, then that's a potential cause of fetal growth restriction. You should monitor that, okay? So you see how this does matter because if you listen to the, if you read the first title, like oh, placental lakes, I mean, aren't those benign? Well, yes, for sure, but there's some things that may not be, okay? And I'm going to give you a, a couple of examples. We already talked about the calcifications found very early on that could be a marker of some kind of placental pathology going on, but it doesn't really mean anything at term. However, large placental lakes aren't always a benign deal because sometimes there's other things that can explain that, like corangiomas uh, that have ruptured, uh, these little weird vascular tumors. Uh, th- those do happen in the placenta. They are benign. They're not cancerous. But anything funky in the placenta can't be ignored, right? The placenta, as I mentioned before, that, I mean, that's the kid's refrigerator giving the baby food. And if something is messing with the refrigerator, y- you don't want to ignore that. I mean, y- you want to make sure it's functioning well. So, yes, in general, let me give a quick spoiler. Well, we're going to walk through the data. We're going to walk down history. The quick spoiler is, in general, placental lakes are benign findings with one big caveat. All right? And the big caveat is, like in real estate, location, location, location. Because if you find placental lakes with a certain type of placenta with a certain history – and man, I'm just spoiling everything here, like like multiple C-sections or even just one prior section, that's a flag, okay? So if you're taking your oral boards and somebody asks you, oh, tell me the significance of placental lakes. Well, your first rebuttal is, oh, uh, I'm sorry, um, examiner, uh, doctor X, Y, or Z, uh, a super relevant question, I get that. But can I ask you, where is that placenta located? Because location here and the patient's history will help me guide uh, the patient's care and possibly even referral. So I need to know the patient's history and where that placenta lies. Y'all get where I'm going with that, right? 
And if you don't, hang in there because I'm going to explain that in a minute. So, but in general, these large echolucencies are typically benign. But again, hang out with us towards the end of the episode. So I'm going to tell you what to do with uh, the placenta at delivery outside of looking at it. There's something to do with it uh, because we do need to get good histological confirmation here. But in general, placental echolucencies or placental lakes are absolutely fine, but you do want to send those placentas off. Well, again, there's another spoiler. You want to send it off in addition to gross examination at time of delivery because there are some weird vascular malformations that should be documented correctly. All right. So again, I just kind of give you a big overview of what's coming up in the next, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or so. But that's where we're at. In general, they can be benign, uh, except for one specific kind of placenta, which we'll get into in just a minute. Oh, let me just give you one quick one fact as a one-off before we get into the data that looks at placental lakes and has tracked outcomes, right? We're going to walk down over a 21-year history in like 10 minutes, all right? That's a lot of data, but but over 21 years, and we're not going to cover every piece of literature because they're all pretty much in the same track, all right? They're all in the same road. They're all in the same vein. So if I give you the big major landmarks and you get the gist of it, all right? But here's one quick fact as a one-off. Remember, as a clinical pearl, that the presence of large placental lakes can be associated with an increased maternal serum alpha-fetoprotein. So if you get MSAP between uh, you know, 15 to 22 weeks, we typically ordered between 18 and 22 at the time of the fetal anatomical survey, and it's off. It's like, hey, man, this thing is way off. The multiple in the median is high, and you don't find anything. An easy answer is, well, it could be explained by the large placental lakes, all right? So that that's that's a good side note that, man, look for defects. I don't find anything. But an easy explanation outside of being just wrong in your EGA uh, is that large placental lakes will throw off, will give you an increase in maternal serum alpha-fetoprotein. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so let's start back over 21 years ago, back to 2002. 2002. In the journal Placenta, don't you just love that? There's a journal named Placenta, like not placental unit or maternal placental structure. No, just, just a placenta. That's like having an ophthalmology journal that's retina. Is there? I'm sure there is, or like uh, lens. That's all I deal with is just the lens. Anyway, in the journal Placenta, authors from the UK published their take on this subject. The aim of the study was to determine prospectively whether an association existed between the finding of placental lakes at 20-week ultrasound and an increased risk of uteroplacental complications or any poor pregnancy outcome. That's exactly what we're talking about here, all right? Now, there were other studies before 2002, but I picked out, uh, trust me, guys, I went through all of this data that I could find through Google search, PubMed, yada, yada, uh, and these are the main ones that uh, were either larger quantity or were uh, better done, uh, better methodologies, uh, except for one that I'm going to show you uh, here at the end that kind of had some issues, all right? 
But, but this is exactly what we do here at Clinical Pearls. We kind of do the work for you so you don't have to go back and spend three hours like I did uh, looking through this data. Okay, so these authors studied the placental appearance in close to 1,200 consecutive second trimester ultrasound scan, which was performed for routine fetal survey, all right? The placental thicknesses were also measured at the widest part in the sagittal plane, and the presence or absence of these placental lakes were then recorded. All right, birth weights were then done once the baby delivered and then matched in, in percentiles based off the hospital records. They also looked at specific measures, including babies that were born FGR or a birth weight under the fifth percentile to look for preeclampsia, abruption, and perinatal deaths. I mean, those are all good things to check for. Placental lakes were seen in about 17.8% of all the scans, and there was no significant association with either maternal sociodemographic features or any perinatal mortality. There was also no association between cigarette smoking or birth weights under the fifth percentile or the development of pregnancy-induced hypertension. There was no association with severe preeclampsia or placental abruption. But they did find something rather interesting. They're like, hey, placental lakes seem to be more common, about six times more common, if the placental thickness was greater than three centimeters at 20 weeks. Now, they didn't say this was good or bad. They just said, meh, it's an interesting find. The fatter, the thicker the pancake, uh, the more weird uncooked battery you have in it. Okay, fine. Overall, they concluded, a finding of placental lakes during the second trimester ultrasound scan does not appear to be associated with uteroplacental complications or an adverse pregnancy outcome, end quote. Great, that's good info. But again, just one publication from Placenta in 2002. So let's continue down walking down our history timeline just three years down the road, ending up in 2005. In 2005, published in the Journal of Clinical Ultrasound, researchers published their analysis of placentas in over 4,000 singleton pregnancies without any other maternal or fetal condition. And they were collected between 15 and 34 weeks as part of routine fetal assessment, all right? Now, 59 cases presented with placental lakes and were followed through the end of pregnancy. So this is good because this is kind of a, another prospective study. Obstetric outcomes were then compared with that of those that were sonographically normal, meaning absence of large placental lakes. Both macroscopic and microscopic examinations for pathology were then performed in both groups. They found, again, no statistically significant differences in birth weight, gestational age at delivery, adverse obstetric outcome, or any macroscopic or microscopic results between the control and the study group. So the authors concluded, quote, these findings do not seem to indicate any increase in the risk for adverse pregnancy outcomes in cases presenting with placental lakes. End quote. Remember, this was a journal of clinical ultrasound in 2005, and the lead author is Reese. That's R-E-I-S. More recently, out of the ACOG's annual clinical meeting from 2002, from May of last year, Monsoor et al. presented and published their findings from their retrospective study out of Northwell Hospital. That's a pretty large hospital chain. The objective of the study was to determine whether large lakes or multiple lakes were associated with any increased risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes, just like the other studies. This was a retrospective cohort that included all pregnant women with placental lakes on 
on the usual 20-week ultrasound scan that spanned the interval from January 2018 until July 2021, and this was done across seven hospitals through that hospital system. Exclusion criteria were multiple gestations, placenta previa, and invasive placentation, since most invasive placentas will have placental lakes. And that's a little tidbit, that's a little clinical pearl that I mentioned before. That's why location, location, location matters, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. For each patient, clinical characteristics were then obtained and ultrasound images were reviewed to determine whether these lakes were small or large or single or multiple. The short of it is they looked at these adverse outcomes of preterm birth, low birth weight, mode of delivery, and preeclampsia. Out of that entire study pool, a total of 210 patients were included for the analysis. No demographic differences were noted between groups, and the important thing is that there was no differences in gestational age at delivery, preterm birth, cesarean delivery, preeclampsia, or birth weight between those with multiple or large lakes and those without. So the authors concluded, quote, placental lakes that are found on 20-week fetal anatomy ultrasound, even when larger than 5 centimeters or even when they were multiple, are not associated with any adverse pregnancy outcome, end quote. Okay, so notice that all of these came to the same conclusion. Placental lakes, excluding previous and prior sections, no big deal, right? Okay, I'm digging that. I get that. It's pretty straightforward. But there is one publication from the Journal of European Review for Medical and Pharmacological Sciences. Yeah, that's all the title. That had a different conclusion. All right. Now, remember, here it's all about giving you all the information so that you decide. But at the end, I'll give you my take on this, which, spoiler, is just what these studies already found. That This is a normal finding in excluding the setting of a preview and multiple section that we'll talk about in a minute. But this one publication publication we do have to mention because it was recent. It was done in 2022 uh, with authors coming out of China. And I do want to let you know what they found because they found a couple of red flags here. But the reason they did uh, has to do with the methodologies of this study. It's got some flaws in it, and I'm going to cover that here in just a minute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So this 2022 publication out of China was a little bit different because they focused on, quote, non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracings, intrapartum, end quote, all right? So they said, oh, let's take a look at this uh, cohort. Now, they did this retrospectively, okay, Uh, to look at those who had non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracing as, as a diagnosis. And that was defined as category two or category three strips. It's like everybody else does. That's a uniform thing. And then let's go back and take a look at those that had placental lakes to see if there was a correlation, all right? So 
they, in other words, a diagnosis was found of non-reassuring fetal tracings and then looking back to match them to see if there was a correlation with these placental lakes. Well, the authors found that there was a statistically significant difference in the incidence of both premature rupture of membranes. Yeah, they used premature rupture instead of pre-labor rupture of membranes, but I'm telling you exactly what they said because I have to be true to the, the, to the manuscript. But remember, it's now called pre-labor rupture of membranes. And they found an association between lakes and non-reassuring fetal status at time of delivery, all right, intrapartum. But here's the catch here, because this study does have some limitations. Uh, The authors did report on the frequency of non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracing, all right? I get that. However, umbilical arterial cord gases weren't provided, nor were the APGAR scores, which is kind of weird, because they say in their methods and in their statistical analysis that a secondary outcome was to compare APGAR scores. But they never talked about it again. So, all right, so you looked at non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracing as a diagnosis, but what happened? I mean, was there all metabolic acidosis? Were there bad APGAR scores? None of that was discussed. It's also not clear if those non-reassuring fetal heart tracings resolved with resuscitative measures or how many ended up as a stat C-section. That's not clear. But most importantly, we know that these non-reassuring fetal heart rate patterns really is such a huge category that there's so many different possibilities of what could cause that, that to pin it on placental lakes seems uh, a little uh, as an overstretch. Remember this whole issue of observer bias that we talked about in the episode of Circumvallate Placenta? The early studies that kind of matched or associated circumvallate placenta with some adverse outcomes was done when they were done retrospectively, all right? So they took a look at the placenta delivery after a, a big D cell or a stat section or whatever and said, ah, look, now I find the circumvallate placenta. That obviously was, was the cause, right? So that was matching a placental finding to an adverse outcome. That's observer bias. Uh, and that's one of the things that, that limited the interpretation of those studies for circumvallate placenta. And I mentioned that in that episode. That's why it's better to do that prospectively, all right? Find it first and then see what they do because uh, you try to eliminate, eliminate that uh, retrospective observer bias. But that's exactly what this publication did, right? Oh, you had a non-reassuring fetal tracing. Now let's look back. Oh, there was placental lakes. Therefore, that's to blame. When we know that non-reassuring fetal status is a huge category. Plus, even though they defined what the non-reassuring fetal status was as those that were either category two or three, they didn't give a breakdown of what those actually were. I mean, were the majority category two or the majority category three? So there are a lot of limitations and a lot of study issues with this publication. Most publications that have looked at large placental lakes have found no association with any adverse neonatal outcome with the one exception of the placenta previa in a patient with a history of prior sections. Remember, location, location, location. That was from ACOG's Obstetrical Care Consensus Number 7, uh, all of the literature on PAS, placenta accreta spectrum, that shows that the presence of large placental lacunae uh, and this increased uh, intraplacental or subplacental vascularity in placentas that are previas and who have one or more previous sections is a big red flag for possible uh, abnormal attachment, all right, for the PAS spectrum. So again, if you ever asked, what does large placental lakes mean? The first rebuttal to that or the second question is, I'm sorry, I'm assuming that these are not previous in patients with prior sections, because if they are, that's a big flag. And I need to refer that to a placenta accreta spectrum uh, specialty center 
or at least do uh, extra testing because I'm very worried about that. But if it's this is a typical placenta that's fundal or posterior and you find these placental lakes, that's just a normal finding. That's totally fine. They just have larger intervillous spaces. But remember that location, location, location here does matter. And you can go back to the ACOG obstetric care consensus number seven for that info. So, Emily, now that we're nearing the finish line, thank goodness, uh, what's the take-home message? Well, it seems to be pretty easy here based on the evidence. Placental lakes seem to be a normal variant of placental structure and do not seem to be linked to any adverse neonatal issue in the absence of placenta previa in a patient with prior cesarean section. And this holds true whether they're seen in the first trimester, the second, or in the third That's why, and here's the clinical pearl, guys, that's why ACOG's indication for outpatient fetal surveillance does not even include venous lakes as an indication for fetal surveillance. So you can go back to ACOG committee opinion number 828 from 2021 and look at that list and placental lakes, either single or multiple, are not on there. As our final clinical pearl, remember, if you're ever in doubt of any kind of placental funkiness, then just send it. Histological pathological examination of the placenta is perfectly fine. Now, in the vast majority of cases, you're not going to get any eye-opening, brand-new, aha moment diagnoses, but it still adds to the, to the confirmation that something may have been a little bit aberrant in the placenta. So we always send our placentas for uh, multiple gestations to determine and confirm the chorionicity and the, uh, uh, and the placenta number. We always end up with meconium stain fluid to look for meconium staining. Uh, we send that in all cases of neonatal resuscitation, fetal growth restriction, diabetes, chronic hypertension, severe preeclampsia. I mean, just send it. It's true. We're not going to get a vast, uh, huge eye-opening diagnosis, but it can help find some weird little histological caveats that you would not have seen otherwise. The same goes here with large placental lakes. There are those weird things like placental hemangiomas that can um, coalesce and then rupture, and you would, you would only see that based on histological examination. Those are benign, but it just helps a closed loop uh, on that diagnostic picture, which may or may not provide any additional helpful info. But again, it's just something else that you can show the, the parents uh, and the patient, look, remember those large placental lakes who sent off the placenta, and it was much to do about nothing, just as we had suspected. It's just good to not discard any potential piece of information uh, that could be helpful. At the minimum, remember to always perform a gross inspection and document that uh, of the placenta at time of delivery. We should do that with every delivery, including C-sections. That requires a manual and a visual inspection of the placenta. But if there's any concern, then just send it for histological survey. All right, everyone, that's a wrap. Emily, thank you for reaching out. What a great clinical question. We see these things frequently, and we just have a brand new batch of interns uh, that started actually on Monday. They just finished their two weeks of orientation in boot camp. Uh, Now they are roaming the world wild under our supervision, of course. And I'm sure they're going to find these and someone's going to ask, ooh, what about those large placental lakes? Well, now you know. So Emily, thanks for reaching out. It's a great clinical question. And as always, we're thankful for you and we're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.